You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. Good day, everyone. Hello, it's good to be back up the front again, second time today. Uh, my name is Matt, it's good to be with you, particularly if this is your first time with us. Uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, Now, we're in this series in the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, which is modern-day Greece. Uh, We've called this series The Secret, Lessons in Contentment. But the problem is that I reckon contentment is something that's pretty hard to find, isn't it? I think we've all had one of those moments where we think, is this it? I'm reading this book at the moment, and the author of the book, he he describes this, this scene of his life where he's laying in a bathtub, looking up at the ceiling. He's 39 years of age, and he he starts to think to himself, this is my life? This is where it's all come to? Have you ever had a moment like that? Uh, John Mayer, he's one of my favourite musicians. Any John Mayer fans out there? A couple, all the older people. Uh, (laughs) Which is all right. This service, that's a lot. (laughs) I'm in that list. Uh, One of the things um, that I've really appreciated about him over the years, besides his music, has been his... His real honesty about his own life, if I've listened to interviews from him and I've read some of the things he's said, he's been quite candid about his own life. And I think this song of his uh, sums it up really well. It's called Something's Missing. It says, something's missing and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing and I don't know what it is. No, I don't know what it is. Friends, check. Money, check. Well slept, check. Opposite sex, check. Guitar, check. Microphone, check. Waiting on messages when I get home, check. How come everything I need always comes with batteries? What do you think this means? Something's missing. You ever felt like that in your own life? There's something missing. And I don't, don't just mean when life is a bit of a mess, when, when things aren't going the way you thought they should, but when everything's good, when life is good, when you've sort of reached the goals that you've set for yourself, uh, when you've got the things that you thought were going to make you happy, and yet still there's this niggling feeling that something's not quite right, that something's missing. Mel Gibson, in an interview that uh, he gave, said it this way. He said, let's face it, I've been to the pinnacle of what secular utopia has to offer, I've got fame, money, this, that, and the other, but it didn't matter. There wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough. It leaves you empty. The more you eat, the emptier you get. And my favourite actor is Jim Carrey. Don't judge me for that. He's a bit like Coriander, I reckon. You either love him or you hate him. I hate Coriander. I love Jim Carrey. Ace Ventura 2, greatest movie of all time. Here's what he says. Uh, as he went up to receive an award at an at a, uh, awards night, here's what he said in a speech. He said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed of so that they can see that that's not the answer. And so the question is, well, what is the answer? What's missing Uh, What is it that's stopping us from finding this contentment that we're all searching for? Well, what Paul's going to do today in this passage that was just read out before, he's going to share with us his testimony, the story of his life, and how he found something 
that when you put that on one side of a scale and weigh it against everything else you have in your life, that it is of surpassing value. It's like what Jesus said uh, in the parable of the hidden treasure in, in Matthew 13. Remember the parable where he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and brought that field. Jesus is saying that there's something that when you find it, that in joy you'll be willing to give up anything else so as to gain it. And that's what the Apostle's, Apostle Paul's testimony is in this passage. Now, just before we jump in, I thought it'd be helpful for us to sort of go back uh, and have a bit of a look at uh, Paul's life a few years before he became Paul, because he wasn't always Paul the Apostle. Before that, his name was Saul. For the first half of his life, his name was Saul. And we meet him in Acts chapter 7. Uh, this Acts chapter 7 comes just after Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. Uh, the early church has started and uh, the disciples are going out proclaiming this message of a, a crucified and risen saviour. And we meet Saul there at the murder of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And it says that uh, Saul, uh, what does it say? Um, he approved of his murder. He was the one who approved of Stephen's killing. And then from there it says uh, that Saul went on to seek to destroy the church, this early church. It says he was going from house to house, dragging off both men and women and putting them into prison. Now this is a man who hated Jesus, hated Jesus' followers, and he dedicated his whole life at this stage to destroying the church. But it was on the road to this city named Damascus, as he was going there, to arrest Christians and to put them into prison, that he had this encounter with the risen Lord Jesus and everything in his life was turned upside down. Saul, the great persecutor of the church, becomes Paul the apostle and spends the rest of his life telling people about the Jesus he used to persecute. The persecutor became the persecuted, so much so that years later as he writes this letter that we're reading today, he's in prison in Rome. He's put there because he won't stop telling people about this Jesus. And later on, he'll even be killed for it. Now, when you get to Acts chapter 9, which is the passage that uh, talks about the encounter he has with Jesus on the road to Damascus, what's interesting is, if you read it, and you can read it in your own time afterwards, uh, is that you're, we're not told anything about what happens in his mind and his heart as he encounters Jesus. What we're told about is what he does. Now, clearly in this moment, he's converted. There's this huge transformation in his life. You can see that in his actions. By the end of chapter 9, he's not going into the synagogues to round up the Christians and put them in the jail, but he goes there to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. But we're not given any insight into what's going on on the inside. What's he thinking? What's he feeling? What, what's going on in this moment? Well, that's where our passage today comes in, because what we see there is Paul's testimony of what happened back in Acts chapter 9, where he encounters this Jesus for the first time. And so let's now go to Philippians chapter 3 and have a look at what God did in the life of Paul that turned his whole life upside down. So if you've got it there in front of you, open up to, Acts chapter, uh, sorry, to Philippians chapter 3. Firstly, what Paul does here at the start of this passage is he takes us back 
to his life before and say, let me show you what it looked like. And what he says is, what I used to do is I used to put all of my confidence in myself, in the things that I had done. And so have a look at verse 4. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Basically, what he's saying is that if you think there's a reason for you to put confidence in the things that you have done, in your own self-righteousness, in your own salvation, that you think you can earn it before God, he says, that was me. I did it better. So, and then he lists all the things that he did. Have a look at verse 5. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. It's quite a list, isn't it? As he lists all these things that he has done. Well, the, the first half of the list is the things that he received. Uh, it's his heritage. He was born into the right family. And so he says, I was an Israelite. I, an Israelite. I, was, I was a Jew. My parents circumcised me on the eighth day, as was custom in the Old Testament law. Moreover, I can trace my family line back to my tribe. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the tribe where the first uh, king of Israel came from, King Saul. What's his name? Saul, probably even named after the first king. Uh, Benjamin was the, the tribe that stayed faithful to David when all the other tribes abandoned him. And then he says, I was a Hebrew with a Hebrew family line. As far as my pedigree goes, I was it. But then he also lists all the things that he achieved as well. He says, I was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees are the ones who went above and beyond when it came to the law. They were the ones who took the Old Testament law and then built all these other laws around it so they could never even break those laws. They spent their whole time uh, studying and obeying the laws of God into the smallest de detail, seeking to obey them completely. But he didn't just keep the law. He says, I was zealous. So zealous that I took it upon myself to persecute the church as it was growing. That's how, that's how dedicated I was to this. But more than that, he says, finally, and, and I think most impressively, he says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, I couldn't say that about one day of my life. Imagine being able to say that about your whole life, that I've kept the law perfectly, blamelessly. That's what Paul says here, Saul. He says, if ever there was someone who could rely on their own self-righteousness, on their own acts, on their own keeping of the law, on their own heritage to be right before God, it was me. I was faultless. I'd done it all. It's like Saul had two columns in his life. He had his gain column and he had his loss column. In the gain column were all of his achievements, all of his pedigree, all the things he had done that thought that meant he was right with God. And the only thing in his lost column was Jesus, the thing he was seeking to destroy. Now, a modern day example of this might be people thinking that, well, if I baptize my kid, well, that, they've got a ticket to heaven. Or thinking that my good outweighs my bad and so I'm good with God. Or thinking that, well, I was born in a Christian home and I, I read my Bible, I go to church, I pray, I give to church. God must be happy with me. That was Paul. He said, that's the things that I was putting my confidence in. 
That's what I trusted in. But then something happened as he's heading towards Damascus, seeking to persecute the Christians there. Something happened that changed everything in his life. And you you read it in verse 7. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever were gains, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. As he met the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, everything in his life changed. All the things that he had listed, his religious pedigree, his achievements, all, all of these things in that moment flipped from gain to loss. Now, what happened? Well, he'd found something of greater worth. He found something of greater worth than his own self-righteousness and relying on his own actions. You see it in verse 9. He explains it there. He says, Not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. His whole life, he put his confidence in himself, in the things that he had done thinking because of those, because of his obedience, he was right with God. But in this moment, he threw it all away, saw it as loss compared to the surpassing worth of Christ, following him, finding a righteousness that was found through faith in him rather than in his own self-righteousness. He saw all of his past as filthy rags in comparison to the righteousness that comes only in Christ Jesus. But Paul says, It's not just my righteous achievements to me that are lost. Because he goes on. Have a look at verse 8. He says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now in the Greek, this sentence starts with five little particles. If you were to translate it literally, it would say something like, but rather therefore yet even. It's, it's like he's tripping over himself to try and say, it's, it's not even just the religious things uh, that I don't put any confidence in anymore. It, it's so much more than that. It's, it's anything that I might be tempted to put my confidence in for salvation. Now, you can think about salvation in spiritual terms, uh, in the, the things that you think you can do, your obedience to God to be right with him, but you can also think of it in secular terms as well. Anything that we put our confidence in that we think is going to fulfill us, going to bring us joy and happiness and contentment in life. It's when you think, if I just had fill in the blank, then I'd be happy. And Paul says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, just just take a moment. Think about this in your own life for a second. I'm going to have a drink. You have a think. What, What are the things that you're tempted to place your confidence in, whether they're spiritual things, religious things, or whether they're just things like career or financial security or whatever it is, what are the things that you would put in your gain column? Just have a think. Just in your head. Don't call them out. I'll have a drink. These are the things that 
I'd put in my gain column. Things like my family, friends, financial security. That For me, that's, that's a big one. Health, a house, a job, abilities, just, just being a good person. Now, you notice as you look at a list like that, maybe yours is similar. Maybe you've got some different ones. They're all good things, aren't they? They're all good things to have. But the thing is that often we're tempted to put our confidence in those. And when we do that, we turn good things into God things. We think they're the things that are going to save us. But then imagine if you took all of those things and you moved them from your gain column to your loss column and the only thing that was left in your gain column was Jesus. Because that, that's what Paul does. As he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, that's what happens in his life. Everything that he thought was gain becomes loss, and the only thing left as gain is Christ. Now, I, I have a group uh, that meets in my house every Tuesday night. I love this group. Uh, most of the people who come along wouldn't yet call themselves uh, Christians. And on Tuesday night this week, I said, look, I need some help. I'm preaching on this passage on Sunday. Let's, let's work through it. I want to hear from you guys. And I said, take the whole passage. What do you reckon, if you had to boil it down, what's Paul saying here? What's, what's the point? They thought about it for a minute, and then one of them looks up, and he's like, what he's saying is that Jesus is of so much more value than anything else. And I was like... That's it. You've got it. I was like, let's get ba- let's baptize you right now. There's a, got some water outside. Let's get this done. That's what Paul is saying here, that he had found a treasure that it was of surpassing worth, that he was willing to get rid of anything in order to gain him. And for Paul, this wasn't just a theoretical moving from one column to the other. He says he actually lost everything for Christ. Let's have a look at verse 8. It says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Remember, where is Paul as he writes this? He's in prison for Jesus. He's literally lost everything. He's chained to a guard and he's facing execution. This is the guy who exchanged all of his life, his religious credentials, his heritage, everything that he had in life for Christ to the point where he's in jail facing death and he still says gain. Totally worth it. But he takes it even further. Classic Paul. Have another look at verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I, count, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. He says that compared to the surpassing worth of Christ, everything else is not just loss, it's garbage. But our translation, I think, is just a little bit too tame. It's a little bit too Christian. What, what Paul actually says there, if you, if you were to translate it more literally, is I consider everything to be dog crap compared to Christ. Completely useless for putting your confidence in. He says, hold up anything next to Christ and it's just crap. 
And that's Paul's testimony. That's what happened to him as he met the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Everything in his life was flipped upside down. All the things he used to put his confidence in, gone. And the only thing left was Christ. He was willing to lose everything so as to gain the treasure of infinite worth. But the question is, or at least the question I have, is what does that mean? What does it mean to gain Christ? What, what does it look like? What would it look like in our lives to do that? Well, I think you see the answer right there in the heart of this passage. It's a big passage. I'm really focusing in on that main section. But have a look again from verse 7. Because he says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Why? Well, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What Paul says is it's in knowing Christ that far outweighs everything else. It's the knowing of Christ. And it's not a knowing about him as if it's some sort of intellectual knowledge that I just didn't know who he was and then I figured it out, oh, everything's changed. No, it's, it's speaking here of a deep, relational, intimate knowledge. It's, it's a word that's used all throughout the scriptures, the New Testament and the Old Testament, to describe an intimate relationship of love. When God speaks of his people, he, he uses this word. Uh, when a, a husband knowing his wife, it's this, that's the language that it uses here. Now, I'm trying to explain this this week. I'm trying to think about how could I do this. And here's my best attempt. I'm going to give you a series of statements. I'm going to put them up on the screen, hoping to try and show you what, what all this means, trying to connect it all together. And so here's the statement. Stay with me. See if you can follow the logic. There is a God who made us. We are not an accident. There is a God who made us. And he made us to know him. He, he wants to be in relationship with us. He made us for relationship with him. The only thing, uh, therefore, he is the only thing that can actually satisfy us, the God who made us. The problem is, though, that we spend our lives thinking that other things will satisfy us. And so we chase after them instead of God. But we're always left with this searching thinking there must be something more. But what God does is he comes to us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He literally puts on flesh and becomes one of us so that we could know him. And it's through his life, through his death, through his resurrection that he has done everything that is needed for us to come back to him, to know him. And so what does that mean to know Jesus? Well, it means to know the God who made us, to be in relationship with the God who made us, to find joy and contentment in him rather than in something that he has made, as John Mayer would say, something that comes with batteries. The great philosopher Augustine of Hippo in the 3rd century, I'm sure you've heard this quote before, but I just think it's so helpful. Uh, he spent his life searching for fulfillment. And in the end, he came to the conclusion in his book, Confessions, which is really just a, a long prayer to God. And this is what he, what he said. As he prayed to God, he said, you have 
made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We were made for a relationship with the God who made us. And until we have that, until we know him, there'll be something missing. And that's what Paul found in a relationship with the God who made him, the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. But you see what he adds to it. Because he says it's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Uh, when, you, when you know Christ, not intellectually, but when you know him relationally, he's not just the Lord, he becomes my Lord. You know, remember Thomas, the disciple? Jesus has... Uh, Risen from the dead, he appears to all the disciples. Somehow Thomas isn't there. He's gone out to get the milk or something like that. By the time he gets back, Jesus has left, and all the disciples are like, you wouldn't believe it, Jesus is risen from the dead? And he's like, don't believe it. Unless I see his hands and his feet where the scars were, I won't believe it. And a few days later, Jesus comes again, and he says to Thomas, see my hands, see my feet, see the, my side. What does Thomas do? He falls on the ground and he says, my Lord and my God. And it's the same thing that happens here with Paul. As he sees Christ for who he is, he's not just the Lord, he becomes my Lord. And it's the same with us. Unless you know Christ like that, he, will, he might be the Lord, but he won't be your Lord, won't be my Lord. And it's only when you see him as my Lord that you will see him as of surpassing worth and everything else is trash. Okay, with the time I got left, what I, what I want to do, I just want to finish by painting four quick pictures of what this might look like in our lives. What, what does it look like to live this out in our lives? Number one, when you have to choose between Christ or anything else, choose Christ. Uh, I don't think Paul's saying here you need to give up everything in order to gain Christ, although that may be what is needed. But what he's saying is that when you come to a fork in the road and one way is choosing Christ and the other is not, in that moment, choose Christ. He's of surpassing worth. Now, for us living in Sydney, we need to hear this. For many of us, I think we've either made decisions or in the next few years, we're going to make decisions that are going to cause us uh, to choose other things over Christ. Maybe it's taking a job promotion that means more hours, less time at church, less time with Christians, less time in the word, more time at work. Maybe it's going into more debt than you can really afford on a house. So you can't be generous anymore with your time, with your money. Maybe it's a relationship that you know isn't going to cause you to treasure Christ, but cause you to walk away from him, and yet you still choose that over Christ. Now, I don't say any of this to condemn anyone, but I'm saying it because if you know Christ, you have the thing of surpassing worth, and so you can choose him over anything else. And so maybe some of us need to make hard decisions, be willing to lose whatever it is that we've got in order to gain Christ to see him as of that surpassing worth. Sometimes that means suffering and loss as well. 
but there's a joy and a contentment that you can gain that far outweighs these other things. That's the first one. When you have to choose between Christ and anything else, choose Christ. He's of surpassing worth. Second thing, what, what does this look like? Well, I think it's seeking to hold loosely the things of this life so that others look at our lives, they will see that they aren't the things that we put our confidence in, but that Christ is. So imagine with me for a moment if we held the things in our lives, the things we put in our gain list before, so loosely. Imagine if we shared so generously. Imagine if we gave of our time and our money so sacrificially that as people looked at our lives, they could see that, man, Matt doesn't put his confidence in those things. He puts it in something else. A mate of mine uh, grew up on the mission field. He told me a story of before his parents left to go and be missionaries, they owned a house and they sold the house and gave all the money away and then left to go on the mission field with nothing in their bank accounts. That's what I heard that. I was like, that is crazy. Why would you do that? At least you know, put the money into a savings fund, have it as a security thing for when you get back and all that. But God has completely provided for them over the last 40 years or so that they've been on the mission field. And I'll tell you what, it's so clear what their confidence is in. It is not in their financial security, but in Christ. John Piper says it this way. He says in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, he says, The world is not impressed when Christians get rich and say thanks to God. They are impressed when God is so satisfying that we give our riches away for Christ's sake and count it gain. What does it look like? Number three, it's keep getting to know Christ each day. It's not a, not a once-off thing. It's like you, you get to know Christ when you meet him for the first time and that's it. It's an every day for the rest of your life kind of thing. It's coming to know Christ's love. It's coming to know what it means to be part of his family. It's what he did in his death and resurrection, how he has dealt with our sin to bring us back to himself into a relationship with him. It's getting to know him more deeply each day. And so Paul says it this way in verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. It's this ongoing relational knowledge, getting to know who Christ is. But even Paul wasn't there yet. You ever read Paul's letters and think, I can never live up to this? Well, I love what he says next. Have a look at it, verse 12. This is Paul. He says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already reached my goal, but I press on to take hold for that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And so like Paul, we can forget what's behind us and we can press on towards the goal of knowing and gaining Jesus. And then finally, what could this look like? 
in our lives. Well, I reckon it looks like that if we were to lose anything or everything, as Paul did, we don't lose our joy and our contentment because they were never found in those things in the first place because our surpassing treasure is Christ. And so if you lose a job or you never get a job, the job you want, or you don't get to own a house in Green Square, or you don't get that visa that means you can stay in Australia, or you never get to get married, or you get the diagnosis and it's cancer, or you find out you can't have kids, or that you, you've lost a child, through the deep pain and loss that these things are, you can still say, Christ is my deepest joy and my deepest treasure. Imagine if that's the kind of people we were here at Grace City. Imagine if we treasured Christ like that, that he was of surpassing worth, that even in those darkest moments in our life, we could still have joy and contentment because Christ is our greatest treasure. That would be a powerful witness to those around us, wouldn't it? It would show them that we have something of surpassing worth, something that is of more importance to us, something that we have put our confidence in that far outweighs anything else that this life can offer. And so, Grace City, we, we have a God who willingly gave his greatest treasure for us. We have Christ who, for our sake, lost all things so that we might gain him. Everything else is lost compared to him and the surpassing worth of knowing him. And so let's pray that we would be those kinds of people. Father, we thank you for the way that you worked in the life of the Apostle Paul, that you brought him from Saul, the great persecutor of the church, to Paul the Apostle who spent his life pouring himself out to make you known. We thank you that as he met the Lord Jesus, that everything that he used to put his trust and confidence in became lost to him and Christ became his uh, treasure of surpassing worth. Lord, I pray too as we hear his testimony that that uh, too would be true of us, that we would see the Lord Jesus as of more worth than anything this world has to offer and that we would treasure him and not those other things. Lord, will you help us to be a people that as they look at our lives, that they would see that our worth is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. My wealth is in the cross. There's nothing more I want than just to know his love.